something Peter said before just really struck me, actually. Jesus is alive, and, and I can categorically state that, because if he wasn't, I wouldn't be today. Absolutely, a shadow of a doubt, I wouldn't be alive. Um, last time I was in Edinburgh was for the book launch I was doing, which must have been about three, three and a half years ago, up in um, Borders, how do you say it, Borders, in uh, up the road here and there wasn't quite as many people at that I can guarantee it you know, I mean it's, it's good to see so many people here tonight it's like wow I think, well, yeah but I'm not here to sell books by the way um, just a little story aside from that I actually didn't write the book either I had a lot of help to do that I'm certainly not a writer and a, a lady in a church in York who's written a number of books helped me to put it together and stuff And um, but there was a mistake in that, that in the Isle of Man a few, well, about two years ago, this public school got a hold of it on the island. Well, it's the only public school on the island. And one of the teachers called me in. Unbeknown to me, I thought he was asking me in to talk about my story and stuff. But it, when I got there, there was like about this many people, all students, and plus the parents as well. They're really like posh kids and all their parents with the fur coats and all this. And I mean, in this sort of time, I'm like, Oh, my life, what's going on here? And, um, and he said, I want you to judge a poetry competition. I'm like, what? <laughs> my poetry extends to, like, roses are red, kind of, you know what I mean? Kind of thing. I can't even remember the rest of it. <laughs> and uh, I was like, and he made me sit, like, uh, like, like in, um, Pop Idol or something on this little panel with two others like you know what I mean and I'm thinking I am totally out of my day. I don't know I haven't got a clue what to do here you know what I mean and these kids started getting up and reading these pros and stuff and, uh, and I, I just said have you got a piece of paper like and a pen you know what I mean so I'm sitting there with this piece of paper and I'm going uh, 6 out of 10 7 out of 10 you know as each one's coming up and stuff you know what I mean and at the end of it he says to me I'd like you to go down on the stage now and present the prizes to third, second and first place and, uh, and explain why you've given the prize. I was like, and I just didn't have a clue. I was walking down absolutely petrified. And I got up onto the stage and I was just, I was, God help me, God help me, God help me. I was, I was walking across the, the stage back and forth like this, waiting for something off God. I was going, God help me, God help me. They couldn't hear this, you know what I mean? It's going on in my head. And uh, I must have done this about six or seven times back and across the stage. And I started noticing that they were getting nervous, obviously, because they could feel that I was nervous. And um, so then I started just messing around. I was going... <laughs> and they were doing exactly that as well. They were laughing. And I just, it just dawned on me. I just, right, thank you, God, I've got it. And then I said, right, in the third place, I've given it to such and such, Billy, uh, whatever, Billy Nomex. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and it's for this reason, because he made me feel this way when he spoke. And second place, it's to this girl, and she made me feel this particular way in first place. And I was like, phew, man, I got out of that one by the skin of my teeth, didn't I? And, hey, thank you, God. Um, that's got nothing at all to do with my story. Uh, I just thought it was a little something to tell you about. Uh, I'm going to talk about sin tonight. Um, mostly my sin. Um, I'll start at the beginning. Very early age, my earliest kind of memory was playing in the street one day on my little three-wheeler bike, trying to pull wheelies and fell off the back of it and split my head open. Ran home to my mum, crying my eyes out, pouring my blood, and uh, she told me to F off and go and see my gran, who lived across town. Um, <clears throat> off I ran, and then my gran took care of me. Shortly after that, my 
dad came home and discovered my mum having an affair with another guy um, and took me and my brother with him, left, me, left my sister with my mum. Um, for the next six years or so, we were passed from pillar to post, my brother and I, up until about the age of eight where I was adopted um, in another part of the island. Um, and at the age of 10, I decided I had enough and ran away from them. I got on my push bike and cycled about 11 or 12 miles, it was, over the islands, back to my grandparents. On arriving at my grandparents, this is actually a part of the story I've only just been able to tell because um, my granddad died recently. But on arriving back at my grandparents, um, my grand was open arms, great to see me and stuff, but my granddad just couldn't stand the sight of me. He really didn't want me there because I was abused by him at a very young age. I was about four years old and I was, well, I'm not going to go into it, you know what I mean? But, um, and so, obviously, I was suddenly this person of condemning him of his guilt, of his, of his sin, if you like. And he, it felt, he felt uncomfortable with it. And, um, but then my grand was loving me. It was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde situation going on. And because of that, I was very insecure. There was no foundation there. Um, and I was getting into trouble from day one. I was out smashing windows and stuff, petty things. And then started high school. I started, used to steal the, the liquid paper out of the teacher's desks and save it up till the end of the day. That was my first kind of introduction to drugs and I used to sniff that. And then it progressed, glue sniffing, smoking pot, drinking, you name it. Um, and at the age of about 13, 14, there was a gang of us and we used to, well we knew where this van was, it was used by fishermen in the town to just get around the breakwater and stuff, back into the boats. And, um, we knew the keys were in it and we used to steal it in the middle of the night and drive it around the island and break into all the churches and stuff and, uh, and other shops and things as well. And um, during one of those break-ins at this particular church, we knew where the keys were to the safe in this church, so we used to visit it regularly. So I've really been always a regular church attender, some degree. <laughs> and... Um, one of the lads was keeping watch outside and the three of us went into the vestry at the back and we just, just got the money out of the safe, put the key back and in marched the police with our mate from outside by the scruff of the neck. And apparently they'd been on the balcony for three days staking it out. And um, we were collared basically. And I got put in detention centre, my first taste of prison. Um, and very stigmatized. It was all over the front page of the paper and stuff. It said Sweeney-style swoop nets use. Um, and came back out and went to school and stuff. And, and as I say, it was, I was very stigmatized. felt very uncomfortable with it all. Um, and decided that I was going to leave. And I, I think I'd just turned 15 and I left school. Um, at that point as well, I was fighting a lot with my granddad. He would often beat me up for no reason. Again, probably because of his guilt. Um, and during one of those times, he was quite a big guy, and I'd, I'd become as big as him, basically. Um, and I decided I wasn't going to stand for it anymore, so I fought back. And I had him pinned on the floor, and my grand was screaming, and it was all kicking off. And um, she dragged me off, and I just I got up, and I ran upstairs, and I just I remember just I was that angry, I just booted a hole in the wall. And um, I thought, I'm not standing for this anymore. I don't see why I should have to put up with it. So I left home, and I moved across the road, funnily enough. It wasn't very far, anyway in with these two old guys. I often, or I used to lovingly refer to them as old hippies, but I realize I'm their age now. Uh, so they were young hippies, really. You know what I mean, I, think I call them leftovers from the 60s, these guys. And uh, 
Excuse me. And my drug taking just progressed even more. It was almost like an apprenticeship with them. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and at the age of 18, 19, around that age anyway, I broke into the local chemist. And uh, that was a story in itself. There was a little passageway. Up to, I'm not going to tell you how I broke into the safe, but there was a safe basically. And I had three drawer filing cabinets sat on the top of it. And um, to, get, to break into the safe, I had to get this filing cabinet off the safe. And it was just a small passageway about that wide. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? <laughs> you could see it anyway. And um, so I'm struggling. It was a big heavy thing. I'm struggling to get this filing cabinet off and it fell off and it landed on top of me. And I'm trapped in this little passageway under this three-drawer filing cabinet. I don't know what it was full of. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, man. And um, I'm thinking, this was Saturday night, about 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, I'm thinking, got all day Sunday. Wait till Monday morning. I'm going to be stuck here under this thing till Monday morning. They're going to come in and discover me stuck under this filing cabinet. I mean, I was like, Ugh. and it was about half an hour this was going on. And I think eventually the adrenaline built up sufficiently in me to struggle free from it. And, um, and I carried on with the, the robbery anyway and got into the safe, got all the drugs out of it. And over the next few weeks, pretty much did most of them in with a little help from my friends, as they say. And, um, and then... One, I can't even remember what day it was, but because I was that drug-induced all the time at that point, uh, I was living at my dad's house and his partners, and I lived at the top. I was my room was at the top of the house, and 6:30 in the morning, I was surrounded by eight drug squad officers. Eight drug squad officers, and that's the polite way of saying it. By the way, I wouldn't use. That's probably why I got tongue twisted. I'm not used to saying it that way. And uh, <laughs> and um surrounded my bed with the sniffer dog and they started to proceed down the house, searching the house and eventually they found some stuff under one of the floorboards on the landing and uh, carted me off to the local police station and then off to prison and I, and I was on remand then for 10 weeks in the prison uh, during that time I was getting told by the officers and, and the, the prisoners that I was looking at 15 years and I was really starting to believe this and the day of my sentence came and I was stood in the in the dock, I used to walk up into the courtroom from the cells, straight into the courtroom, and um, the judge started reeling off my sentence, and he was going, you've got three years for this, three years for that, three years for this, and I got accounted to about 15, 18, and I, I just, I went numb, I, I just started thinking about the next, however long I was going to be in prison, the next 10, 12 years of my life, because you don't do it all anyway, you do two thirds, on the Isle of Man anyway, and um, I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to be like, what? I'm going to be nearly 30 by the time I'm out here. And, uh, and, and he, but he was still carrying on. And I just, like I say, I went numb. And the next thing I know, I, I got a tap on the arm by the guard. And the judge was saying, over these half moon glasses, like, you know, I mean, take him down. Like this, really snows. That was, you know. Um, <laughs> and back down in the cell, I was still numb. I was still in shock, really. And I sat on the bed, and um, after a while, the lawyer came into the cell, and I said, you know, what's, what's happening, like, you know, and he said, um, do you want to know how long you've got? I said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and um, he said, you've got three years. I said, you what? He said, you've got three years. I don't understand, what do you mean? He said, well, all your sentences run concurrent, they run into one another, and I was like, oh, 
I had a big smile on my face at this point, you know what I mean? I felt like kissing him, not that I was that way inclined or nothing like you know what I mean? And uh, I just couldn't believe I was so happy at being told I got three years in prison. And uh, what a relief not to have 18 plus or whatever it was I thought I had. And um, got back to prison and realized I was faced with some choices. Uh, even in that situation, I still had choices. And um, my choices were end it all right there and then and I certainly felt low enough to do that uh, second choice was whinge about it for the next two years which I, w what I was going to do out of the three and just moan about it and kick off about it all the time and I thought well that's just self-harm as well at the end of the day or the third choice try and enjoy it as much as I can and get as much out of it as I can because I know from my limited experience of life at that point that when you have fun time goes quick thought, yeah, that's the, that's the logical way forward. Great. Well, that's what I'll do. And I uh, got on with my sentence. Um, all the time I've been planning something. I'd planned to escape. And after four months into the sentence, I escaped. And uh, got back in without any of them knowing. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but that, that was just to set up a drugs line for myself into the prison. So for the next 18 months of my sentence, pretty much the rest of my sentence, I had a constant supply of drugs coming into the prison. And because of that, I could get pretty much anything I wanted as well. I had, like, anything out of the kitchen I wanted, uh, as much tobacco as I wanted. I mean, I used to have to put it in other people's cells because you were only allowed so much. Um, and people would give me their jewellery and all sorts to buy. It was just pot and stuff. And uh, I, they used to give me jewellery and all sorts to buy this pot off me. And um, I used to have to hide it. I was getting it taken outside and hidden until I got out. And, uh, and then a year into my sentence, I was looking at the cell window one day, and the women's part of the prison was right next to the men's. And my cell used to overlook the women's exercise yard, and I spent many an hour looking into that exercise yard. So. <laughs> no, I didn't really. There you go. <laughs> and um, I'd heard my mother was in prison. I'd not seen her since I was four years old. And, and being brought up by my gran, who was my dad's mum, my gran had always put her bitterness onto me towards my mum because of the way that she'd hurt my dad. And um, I looked down at this middle-aged woman walking around the exercise yard, and I just knew it was my mother. She was the only one of that age in there. She was in for fraud or something. She'd embezzled some company she worked with. And um, I sat down, back down on the bed absolutely fuming. I just I hated her with a passion. I really did. I hated her. And I, and I thought... And, it, it dawned on me again, I just thought, you know, this has chewed me up for years, this has. Am I going to allow it to rob the rest of my life? And I just, from now on, as far as I'm concerned, she doesn't exist. I'm going to put her out of my thinking even, you know what I mean, and get on with my life. And, um, and I did. And I said to the, to the guards, under no circumstances do I want to meet this woman while I'm doing the rest of my sentence. Do not let it happen, otherwise there's going to be trouble. And um, it didn't happen, which was, which was a good thing at the time. And um, I got on with my sentence... And just before my 21st birthday, I got out. And what I tell you, walking out, no matter how long you do in jail, even if you just spent a day in a police cell, walking out of that situation into freedom was absolutely what a feeling. Just, wow, you can't put it into words really, you know what I mean? Um, and it was strange as well because I, I was scared to do things like cross the road because I wasn't used to traffic. I remember standing, and it wasn't very busy either, and I remember standing on this curb for about five minutes. It's like Green Cross Code, didn't come into it, you know what I mean? It was like, I could have taught the kids, you know? It was like, man. And um, 
just little things like that. But for the next six months or so, I just went wild. I, I mean, my drug taking hadn't stopped anyway all the way through prison. And it, I just went and turned into it was like a six-month party. I just went absolutely crazy. And then during that time, I met a girl, and we started going out. And I started importing vast amounts of pot into the Alaman and smuggling it and stuff. And in the end, for about two and a half years, I was probably supplying most of the island in cannabis. And um, a lot of money was tied up in it. And I was buying a house at this point as well with my girlfriend because of the money that was being made. I had to set up a false business to hide to justify the money I had and stuff. And she had a job. She worked in the government and stuff. And um, not as a drug squad officer or anything like that. <laughs> um, and then during one of the deals I was involved in in the city in England... Um, and these people were pretty serious people. I knew they'd killed people because that's to the, to the level I'd got to because the amount of money I had and stuff. And it, it feared me at times. It really did put fear into me. And during one of those deals, it all went pear-shaped. And I lost everything. And it's not the kind of business that you get insurance for or that you can go and tell the police about if you've lost something, you know what I mean? And it's like, I just lost it all. And there was money tied up in the house into it and everything. I, I lost the house. But well, the worst of all was I lost my girlfriend. That ended the relationship. I'd been going out with for about three years. And my dog got run over and killed. And that it happened in the space of a week from that deal going pear-shaped to the, everything gone. And ended up sleeping on a friend's floor in his flat. Absolutely at the end of myself. It was worse than the day I got put in prison, to be quite honest with you. And um, somebody come along with some heroin. And it was like, fortunately... When I'd done the chemistry years before, it was probably fortunate that I got locked up and hadn't had a chance to get into it properly. And, um, but at this point, it came along again, and it was an instant painkiller. It took it all away. I didn't have to deal with it. The trouble was then, though, for the next six years, I just went down the heroin road, and um, during which time I met another girl. She started uni in Leeds, and after a year of her asking me to move over, the, over to England with her, I, I was like... Just go back a bit. I'll backtrack a little bit. During that year, I'm not going to say that bit actually because I just realised I might actually be dropping myself right in, right in it. I was getting up to no good anyway, and it's on tape. This. <laughs> um, I'm sure the police would understand anyway. And I have put stuff in the book that you know that I haven't been prosecuted for, so but I'm going to hold back on that one. Um, <laughs> and where was I? <laughs> I use this excuse now, actually, or I've always used this excuse. When I go blank, I blame it on the liquid paper days. So I've got a reason just to recap, just to draw back and recap what I'm going to say. And uh, I'm still doing it. I'm going blank. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I resisted going to Leeds. Thanks, Peter. Pastor Pete, good man. <laughs> and... Um, and in the end, I thought, if I don't go, I'm going to be doing a long, long time in prison again. I'm going to go and make a fresh break of it and, and move across. And, um, and I did. And on day one of arriving in Leeds, my drug habit just exploded even more because there was more of it. It was cheaper. And she kept catching me and saying, choose me or the drug. And, you know, it sounds an easy thing to do, but it wasn't that easy. It had a real hold on me. And I would say, yeah, yeah, I'll choose you. I, I do choose you. You know what I mean? And, and half an hour later, I'd be back in the toilet injecting again. And in the end, I'd actually got sick of the nagging. And I thought, I'm going to move out. 
and I met these guys on the street in Leeds who were begging. And I thought, I'm going to give that a go. And I, and I asked to kind of move into the squat with them and stuff. And they, yeah, yeah, all right, fine. And um, because, to be honest with you, I'd done enough crime, I'd done enough time in prison and stuff, and I thought, at least for that, I won't get locked up and things. So I'll go, I'll go and try it. And they seem to be doing all right out of it. They seem to be funding their habit anyway. So I went down into town this day, first day, and I sat outside the local Safeways right in the city centre. And I couldn't do it. I was a proud man, you know. And I was sat there for about three hours, absolutely ashamed and not able to ask anybody for any money. And um, after about three hours, because of the nature of the drug that I was on, I was starting to get ill. And if I didn't ask somebody for some money soon, I was going to be violently ill. So I started to very nervously ask people for money. And in the end, I got some. I got enough for my fix that day, got sorted out, went back to the squat. And it just progressed from there for about six months. And my habit was about between 80 and 100 pounds a day. And the only thing I wasn't spending money... Um, it was a tin of dog food for the dog. Everything else went on the drug. Um, and then after six months, the big issue came into Leeds. And I, I looked at it and thought, that's going to give me some respect, that bit of self-respect back. So I'll start doing that. It's like a job. At least I'm giving something for the money I'm getting and stuff. So I started selling the big issue. Again, I had to sell that many to get it to the level my habit was at. And that carried on for another two years. I must add at that point that I did get one day off every two weeks, which was dull day. And uh, I used to get about £100 every, for every two weeks, basically. So I thought it was like a holiday every two weeks. And uh, I was like spending 10 hours a day on the street. And I, like I say, I wasn't spending a penny on myself, my clothes, nothing, just the dog food, and that was it. And um, I, I was a tramp, basically. I, I looked totally disheveled. My hair was down here. I had boots on that had holes in the bottom of them that you couldn't see that. I used to have to put plastic bags on my feet to keep my feet dry in the snow and the rain and stuff. And walk into town every day and spend 10 hours there in this freezing cold and, and just like, it was like Groundhog Day, basically. Every day was the same. The whole year you could have put into one day because it didn't change. Absolutely nothing. And you think drugs are, are exciting, you know? Um, well, maybe you don't, <laughs> but people do. And, um, And then one day, oh, sorry, not one day, but for quite a period of time I used to go back to my bedsit and just be sitting on the end of my bed, crying my eyes out. And, and when I say bedsit, that could sound a bit cosy. It wasn't cosy at all. I was in a shared house with eight other rooms in it, one toilet. Every single room either had an addict or an alcoholic in it. The trouble was with alcoholics, they can't often control their bowel movements. So the toilet floor became the toilet, basically. And the landlord was an Asian guy, and all he was bothered about was getting the gyros for the rent every week. And his idea of cleaning the place would be to come in every few months and put another layer of carpet down on top of it all. And it got up to about three or four layers of carpet, basically. So you can, I'll leave it to your imagination. Um, I didn't use it in the end. It would make me sick, to be honest. And you can imagine the heat in the summer and stuff and the smell. It was just foul. Um, I used to pee out the window, to be quite honest with you. Got the toilets in town and stuff, and uh, and I, like you say, because of that situation as well, all as I would do would come home at the end of the day, take my drugs, fall unconscious on the bed, and, and wake up the next day and all start again. I got to the point with it though where I got immune to it all. I'd do stuff like take 20 tamazepam, really strong sleeping tablets, have like three cans of special brew or super tenants or something, and 
and then maybe fall asleep for half an hour and wake up again completely sober. That's, and, and also inject 40 pounds worth of heroin and it was like and having no effect on me. All it was doing was stopping me being ill. And I used to walk into town knowing this every day. I was doing in this complete slavery. And um, I sunk to such depths because, uh, to be able to do stuff. Like there was one old customer I had and I told her that my friend had died in the Isle of Man and I needed to get back there. And she gave me 150 quid to go back to the funeral. It was a lie. You know what I mean? And the trouble was, three days later, I was back on the street. Well, I was already on the street anyway, but I was on the street and she come past again. And I was thinking, oh, no. And she spot me and she did spot me and she come over and she says, what's happened? You know what I mean? So I lost the money. And she gave me another hundred pound. And I was like, oh. but that's the depth I was at. That's the hold it had on me. I didn't care. And, uh, and then, like I say, I used to go back to the bed set and just sit on the bed and cry my eyes out. Lots of nights, absolutely lots of nights. Some, I thought that was the end for me, really did. I thought life held nothing for me. I felt like an old young man. There was not life. With, I might as well, have, I wanted to die, to be honest. And, but the, the dog, my dog I had with me at the time, I still got him actually to this day, he used to just come up and just like lick me behind the ear or something, just keep me going. And he, he was actually the only thing I had to live for. And um, I used to lie in bed most nights and pray and ask God to come into my life. And I, and I meant it as well, because I'd heard the gospel when I was about four or five years old at a local beach mission thing they used to have on the island. And, uh, and I knew what the gospel was. I knew about asking Jesus for forgiveness. I knew about asking for a new start and asking him to come into my life and be my boss. And, uh, and I knew that I, was, that I couldn't be my boss anymore. I was sick of trying to do it my way. I'd lost control. And, and I'd ultimately, I'd reached the ends of the drugs road as well. It, it didn't hold anything for me. I, there was no more drugs that I could progress to that were going to give me a hit. And um, <clears throat> walked back into town this particular day, and one of my customers come to me and started talking to me about Christianity. And I was arguing with him, as you do. I had my odd views at the time, you know. And um, still probably got some, actually. And uh, I haven't, honest. I'm not a heretic. <laughs> and um, he invited me along to a local... Alpha course, Alpha meant nothing to me. He said meal, and that was it. My eyes lit up like, you know what I mean? And I uh, thought, yeah, I'll come. Can I bring the dog? And he was like, yeah, all right, you know what I mean? And uh, I arrived there at the church with the dog in tow, went into this room, and there must have been about 15 to 20 professional types, or maybe they weren't, they were certainly better dressed than I was anyway, you know what I mean? Me, this disabled tramp walked in with the dog, and I felt completely out of place. And, um, ate the food, and they, then they do the discussion afterwards and they talk, and I just fell asleep straight after the food. Didn't hear a word that was said. And uh, I woke up at the end of it, and I felt pretty embarrassed and stuff, and, 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 I, and I went on my way. And, and the next week, again on the street, the guy come to me again and said, would you like to come again? And I thought, do you really want me back there again? And um, he said, yeah, yeah. And um, I said, can I bring a friend? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Another big issue, lad. And... Um, and the dog went back again and we couldn't believe it that we both did it this time we, we, <laughs> I'm not a very good advert for Alpha am I <laughs> and uh, we both fell asleep straight after the food woke up at the end of the talk didn't hear a thing and, and I'm like feeling completely embarrassed and, and like not worthy at this point like you know what I mean and, and then for about the next six months 
the guy kept inviting me to stuff and I used to just make rubbish excuses I'm washing my hair you know what I mean I was like just stupid like you know what I mean when truth being on it was just groundhog day every day and um, after six months funnily enough he was in Edinburgh at the time visiting some friends up here and he, and he was giving up on me and God spoke to him and said go back one more time and at that point I woke up in my room in my bed sit this particular morning and I, I just looked at myself and thought look at the state of you it's a wonder you're not dead there's people lots of people I knew on the streets were dying doing a lot less of the drug than I was doing the same stuff as well and um, and I thought what well, you're either going to die very soon you're going to you end up back in prison doing a long time or I couldn't imagine living this life for another year never mind another 10 years I just I'd had enough and I thought the next thing he invites me to I'm going to go to it and I'm going to make sure I'm awake this time and listen to it but I'd realized as well what had happened with that alpha was that the two times I'd fallen asleep I'd done exactly the same amount of drug that I'd done in the in the week in between and hadn't had that effect off it I thought there's something strange going on here so I've got to go back and hear what's being said and I went along and it was a Friday night and there was a, a band on stage a bit like this and I was like this is odd church where's the organ you know it was like <laughs> just going for it and I thought well this is alright you know I mean? and then they, they finished doing their stuff and this American guy stood up to speak and I was like whoa no way it's American TV evangelist after money you know what I mean and I was like and I just I, I relaxed I was like well I haven't got any money I'm alright I'm safe <laughs> and uh And he started to tell the gospel, basically, about how Jesus had come into the world because he was there to break the line of Adam and Eve. We'd, we'd, Ad, Adam and Eve, basically, if you believe the Bible, were the first people on the earth, and because they sinned, they allowed sin to come into the world through them. They did wrong, basically. They did what God told them not to do. Not that God was trying to give them rules and regulations. He was just trying to keep them out of harm's way at the time they chose to disobey and sin came into the world and spread like a virus like a cancer to the state still the world's in today you can you can pull it all back into that incident it's it's, it's a cancer <coughs> and because we all descend from adam and eve we have their bloodline now this is why jesus was born through mary via the holy spirit basically he broke the bloodline because of the Holy Spirit he didn't come from the same bloodline as us and so he's telling this story and I'm thinking this just makes sense you know when somebody's telling you the truth and they've got no reason to lie to you whatsoever and he said and when he went to the cross the devil thought he'd won and because he got there without actually sinning he accomplished his mission and even to the point where he conquered death and that's, that's what the whole thing about him rising again was and the evidence of him rising again over six weeks to about 500 people and I just thought this is true I know it's true because I've had everything else in life I've had all the trappings of money I've had all the, the effects that drugs can give me and it didn't do it for me I've had relationships they didn't do it for me and I know looking at the people that I've met the Christians even up to that point I thought they've got something and I want it I just know it and he said at the end he says I'm going to pray this prayer now I'd just like you to bow your heads <clears throat> and close your eyes now because of the, the drug what it had done to me I, was, I could 
I used to struggle to go into the Dole office once every two weeks. I just couldn't cope with people. I could barely cope one-to-one, -one, just selling one big issue at a time. I was completely lost all self-esteem and confidence and everything. You know, this, this is the, the grace of God, me standing here tonight speaking to however many people are in the room. Absolutely. And um, at the end of it, he said, you know, as everybody's got their eyes closed, I'd just like you to raise your hand if you've prayed this prayer for the first time. And I couldn't do it. I, I was so scared of somebody seeing me, I just couldn't do it. And I sat there like a nervous wreck on the edge of the seat, like, but knowing that if I didn't do it tonight, I may never ever get the chance again. <clears throat> and in the end, there was this major battle going on inside me. And I just thought, that's it, I've got to do it. And, and I very nervously like, got my hands to about there. He, he was obviously watching me, because he went, thank you. And I, <laughs> my hand was straight back down again, you know what I mean? And I was like... And, uh, <laughs> and I just sat there really sheepish like, you know what I mean? And um, I think it was only, well, I can't remember how many there was on the night that responded, but anyway. And I felt nothing. Jesus didn't appear to me in a blazing white coat or nothing like that, you know what I mean? And I'd heard stories and I thought, wow, you know, what's all this about? But I knew that I meant it. And um, so I thought, oh, you know, I meant it. I sat there and I was with these two guys who'd invited me and stuff at the table. And they said, Luke, we'd like to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, what's this? I've not heard this one before. And uh, <laughs> they said, we don't want to embarrass you, because they could obviously I was, see that I was embarrassed and stuff. We'll just go to a room at the back of the church and pray with you. I thought, yeah, fair enough. You know what I mean? And en route, they said to me, while we're praying, we may start to laugh. It's just us knowing the presence of God ourselves and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, I'm looking at them sideways, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm thinking, what flipping cult is this like, you know? And, uh, and, and then I thought, ah, in for a penny, in for a pound, I'll, I'll have a go, you know what I mean? And, um, and if it gets too much, I can leg it anyway. And uh, <clears throat> got into the room at the back, and they started praying with me. And sure enough, after a couple of minutes, they started laughing. And I just couldn't cope with it. I, I was so paranoid, I thought they were laughing at me. And then and another minute went by, and they stopped. And, and said, you're all right and stuff. I went, no, not really. I said, listen, if this Holy Spirit doesn't come in the next two minutes, I'm going home. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they got earnest in their prayers. And um, started praying again, lay hands on me, just put their hand on my shoulder and stuff. And after about 30 seconds, God just hit me. And there was this heat in the pit of my stomach that just went surged through my whole body and I was just stood there and I just started, nobody coached me about tongues or nothing like this, you know what I mean, I just started speaking in tongues oh, I wasn't like the exorcist or nothing like that I knew what was going on, you know what I mean it was like, and I was just like wow, and tears were just streaming down my face because it was just it was like the most natural thing in the world it was like I'd come home and I'd never really had a home and it was just that just such a wonderful feeling of comfort and, and joy and peace and, and everything all into one. It was like and God's love ultimately, you know what I mean? And just stood there just, just weeping, just and realizing as well that I was saved. I wasn't going to hell. I was actually delivered. I you know, I was going to heaven, I was going to spend eternity with God and, and this was the beginning. Absolutely overawed, but more than that, I, it, it, I was suddenly released from all this bitterness that I had in my heart towards a lot of people that had hurt me through my life, especially my mother. And, and whereas I dealt with it in my head, my mother in prison, it wasn't enough. It was, it was obviously deeper, and, and it was in my heart, and God was releasing me in my heart from it all. And I just stood there, just in floods of tears, just 
with relief and joy and everything else, like I say. And the night ended, and I went back to my bed sit, and I injected heroin. After that, amazing experience. I went back and did more drugs. Um, and over the next three months, I, 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 my, I um, even developed a crack habit. I got well bad on it, spending loads of money. And, um, <clears throat> and the guys were saying to me, you're a hypocrite. How can you go to church? You know what I mean? You know, you're not following God's rules and all this. You know what I mean? And I'm feeling really condemned. And I'm feeling I'm not worthy. I can't go back to church. And the weight of it all was getting so much on me. I got to church one Sunday morning. And I'd been carrying it for weeks, this, this guilt and fear of telling somebody, thinking that if I, once I did, that was it. There was nothing down for me. And... Um, it got to the point where I thought my head was going to explode with it, to be quite honest. And I just had to tell somebody. So I said to somebody, Luke, I've been doing crack and this other stuff for the last couple of months or so. And they just turned around to me and went, you're forgiven. What a smack him. I couldn't believe that the grief that I'd gone through for the past X amount of weeks, you know what I mean? And that was, it just seemed such a throwaway statement. But I realized I was. And it wasn't, you know, and God accepted me as I was. It was about his grace. And he, he took me where I was at and wanted to help me work through these issues. And, and yeah, God can take people straight off stuff. And I've seen that as well, you know what I mean? But he works with us individually as well because we are individual, individuals. We've got our own character and stuff. Um, and then, like, for the first year or so, I, I relapsed now and again, you know what I mean? The odd time. But all that served to do was actually strengthen my conviction that I didn't really want to do it anymore. I'd found something far better. One of the things that happened when Jesus finally went to be with the Father, he said to the disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. He's going to come and equip you and live with you, basically. And he's called the Prince of Peace. And one of the things that I experienced that first night was just an overwhelming peace in my life. And, you know, I get things wrong now still, and, but it's that peace that guides me. It, guide, it talks about it guides us into all truth. And, and he guides me into the truth. You know, I'm not perfect. People, <laughs> people get up my nose. Some certain people get right up my nose. You know I mean, I don't get on with everybody, but that's fine. You know, I'm working on it. Well, God's working on it. <clears throat> I heard, I watched... A little bit of Billy Connolly. I'm not advocating Billy Connolly, by the way. Some of it's quite blue, I know. But I do like some of it as well, I must say. Some of his humour. And he was talking about uh, our anatomy and that how... Isn't it weird the way God's designed our noses to point down? You know what I mean? Why? Because all the snot just runs out, doesn't it? You know what I mean? You've had a hot curry or something like we did last night in Inverness. And he said, why didn't he turn it up the other way around? You know what I mean? So it was like... You know, and he said. But then he thought about it. He thought, "Hang on a minute, you'd drown when it rained, wouldn't you?" <laughs> anyway, that's aside. Um, <clears throat> I've been I've been a Christian now ten years, and it's been absolutely the best ten years of my life. Life isn't over, not by any stretch of the imagination, and, and life. The world did, really did become my oyster, and it's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Life's one of the things my dad, who's not a Christian, said to me after a couple of years of me moving back to the Isle of Man. He said, your, your life's an adventure, isn't it? And I thought, I'd never really thought about it. I thought, yeah, it is, isn't it? You know what I mean, it's like, and it's true. The life as a Christian can be a real adventure if you allow 
God full access into your life? That's the issue. I think my biggest lesson I learned was that first night in that back room. I got real with God. I think that's the issue. It's about getting real. And running after God with your whole heart and saying it as it is, you know, when things aren't going right, you know what I mean? So, well, come on, you know what I mean? Where is this Holy Spirit? If it's that kind of mentality, then that, God hasn't got a problem with that. God wants that heart response from us. I will not recommend people to go to church on a Sunday morning and just go through the motions. Don't do it. You know what I mean? Meet with God. If it was about going to church, I wouldn't have lasted a month even back then because I had to live every day of my life. I carried on selling the big issue. I was on the streets every day because, to be quite honest with you, I couldn't have handled going into a nine-to-five job. The pressure would have been too much. And I sold the big issue for the next four years after becoming a Christian, um, during which time was really good, actually, because a lot of the, the guys saw the, the change in me and also my customers, and a number of them became Christians as well. And, and others died, to be quite honest with you, as well. And that was great, a great experience to, to just be on the street as well. And, and God... Just because you become a Christian, and I think it can often be the mistake as well that we can think we've suddenly become, got to become this church-going, fancy hat-wearing, desert-welly-wearing, uh, tambourine-playing, hallelujah, freak, you know what I mean? That's, sorry, if there's any in here, sorry. <laughs> but that's, that used to be my view of Christianity as well, you know what I mean? And it's not about that, it's about being real getting real with God every day just be real with him I'm going to just read out a few scriptures <clears throat> because this is his word um, just another little story before I do <laughs> I was telling this to Bill last night up in Inverness it was actually Bill's fault Bill, last time I was up speaking it was about five or six years ago I think now and Bill gave me this book by Benny Hinn called he touched me so i'm going back up to leeds on the train i get this book out i'm sitting on the train with this book well, there's a guy sat opposite me <laughs> looking at me like you know what i mean i'm like see you looking at and then it dawned on me like oh, the flipping title of this book like benny hin he touched me i'm like whoa <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so be very careful what books you give it to me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I've forgiven him. God bless him. <laughs> I realise today's Mother's Day, but really, it's Father's Day. It's all, every day is Father's Day. Our Father, God's Day, you know. And I know God is here tonight. Absolutely. And, and Father God. Is calling you if you don't know him and I'm just going to read a few scriptures one of the things that God says that I referred to earlier he said that he gives us a heart of flesh instead of stone it's in Ezekiel and uh, I'll just read it to you and that's the issue I was relating to about my mother and stuff where it was a head thing and it became a heart thing he says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you which again I talked about the spirit in that room that night I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh now all the money 
uh, or all the tea in China will not change our hearts. There's only one person that can do that, that can alter that course, and that's God, because he made us at the end of the day. We can't do it by drugs, we can't do it by wealth, we can't do it by relationships, by as many houses as you want, you know what I mean? It'll never do it. It will never change your heart. It's only God that can do it. In John 3.16, one of the, the most well-known verses, really, he says, I'll, I'll read it to you. Don't take my word for it. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, i.e. go to hell. You know when the judge said to me, take him down, in such a stern voice, that, that for me was a picture of going into the pit, of going into hell basically. And that's the ultimate cost we're going to pay for our sin if we don't get it dealt with. You know, that was just a foretaste for me. I got two years, but man, it would be nothing compared to hell. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The issue is there, believe, belief, believe in him. In Romans 10.10 it says if you believe in your heart, again coming back to that heart issue, and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Just a little story about confession as well and the power of our words. I was trying to illustrate this to my brother a few years ago, who again is not a Christian. And, I, and to be honest with you, I can sail a bit close to the wind at times. And um, I was trying to get this point across to him, the power of our words and, and, and about creation and stuff and how God formed creation through the power of his word. He spoke it into being. You can read it in Genesis. And I said, to, I swore at my brother, I called him a name. And he looked at me and he was really offended. And he was like, you're a Christian, what are you doing? And I went, I just wanted to do that to illustrate to you the power of our words and to show you, look at the, the effect that I caused in you just then. I created that feeling in you by my words. And, and so when it says in Romans, if we confess with our mouths, it's for a very good point. It's because there's power in what we say. Um, going back to the father heart of God. He, you know, he's there like no other father is ever going to be. No matter what we do wrong. He cannot not be our father. It's impossible for him to not be our father. You know, our natural fathers can go away and we can never see them again. They can die or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's like, that's it. But God, he, he can, cannot not be our father. It's, it's an impossibility for him, you know? And nothing can separate us from his love. I just read just a fantastic scripture for you in Romans. It's about God's love and his nature towards us. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with him also? Sorry, bear with me. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who prays for us, basically. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. If you've got hurt, if you think you've done things so bad tonight that God isn't going to accept you, it's a nonsense. I mean, I hope by some of the stuff that you've heard me say, it might not be as bad as some of the stuff you've done, I don't know, that you'll realize that God is there for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing at all, nothing. And and whatever's going on in your head or even in your heart right now that's telling you differently, it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit itself. It's a lie from the devil because the devil's sole intention in this planet is to keep people out of a relationship with God and to destroy souls. That's the bottom line. The bottom line for God is that he so loved us that he wants to save our souls. He gave up even his son for us to save our souls. That's the battle, if you like, in a nutshell. It's there. Simple as. So nothing can separate us from that love. Love.